Okay, so here we go, another Wacky World of Diabetes podcast. And good to have Mike Castiglia from Mankind, CEO, the company that makes a fresh Welcome, welcome to the show, Michael. David, I'm gonna have to start you over. It's like <laughs> Castagna and a Fresa. I need that. <laughs> I always pronounce it wrong. Castagna lasagna. Yeah, I'll get it right. <laughs> yeah, I'll get it right one of these days. So why not, before we get into actually, you know, what Mankind's doing and all about Afresia, tell people kind of how you got to Mankind, you know, what your background is and what, what brought you on this journey. Sure, David. My background, I'm actually a pharmacist by training. So I went to pharmacy school back in the 90s and discovered, you know, where can I make the best impact in society? And I felt working for the pharmaceutical industry was the best spot. And so back then I started my career in HIV. In the 90s, people were getting diagnosed and dying in six months. So it was a tragic time. But we could see what drugs did to patients and extending their life uh, dramatically. And so I stayed in HIV for almost 10 years, and probably 05 is when I left. And I, I worked on the first one pill once a day regimen with Gilead and Bristol Myers back then. And I remember leaving Bristol Myers, who made glucophage and glucovance and all those products, saying people with diabetes have a harder life than HIV. We got HIV down to one pill once a day. And at that time, we were arguing who had a bigger heart risk, you know, the polyurethane inhibitor or the NRTI. And we were arguing over side effects of drugs. And here we are 20 years later arguing whether diabetes drugs have a cardiovascular benefit or kidney protection, right? So finally, the world comes full circle. But so I left and went into hepatitis C and B. And that was my next journey of a startup with a company called Pharmacet and wound up being the cure for hepatitis C called Savoldi. And then from there, I went to learn about biologics. So I, I went to a company up in Boston called Serono and was doing a turnaround in pediatric growth hormone and fertility. And then all of a sudden, these things called biosimilars were starting to evolve. And this is back in 2008. And I had a chance to go build the biosimilar division for Novartis uh, under their, their Sandoz group. And we took the seventh growth hormone that launched and kind of built a business around that. And then we had about nine assets in the pipeline. So I learned all about biologics and insulin and everything else because we were looking at making insulin even back then. Then I went back to Bristol-Myers and it turns out along this journey, I didn't realize, David, that I started doing turnarounds. And so I, I liked running into the fires and fixing things. And so Bristol-Myers asked me to come back and work on a product for rheumatoid arthritis. And that was a drug that never did well. And we kind of turned that around called Arencia. And uh, today it's doing over $2 billion in the US. It's done a great job since then. And then uh, I got recruited out to Amgen here in California. And so I, I came out to Amgen nine years ago. Great company. But one of the things they had was a bunch of biosimilars coming at their products. And how do we innovate against biosimilars? And that was a big challenge I, when I came there, they wanted to, me to work on. And so one of the things we actually did was around Omnipod, as you guys know this in diabetes, I worked to bring that into the oncology segment there at Amgen. So we brought it out for Nupro. And the key thing was like people were coming back after getting chemo 27 hours, 24 hours later to get a shot. And I'm like, well, why don't we take a device and you know make sure we can make it work and all that. And so we reprogrammed Omnipod 27 hours later just to inject the new Lasta. And that eliminated so much trauma for patients, right? Just amazing. I couldn't believe if you don't want to go for cancer and I got to go back a day later, they feel like shit. And so that, that really did a great job for the last and benefit patients. And then things were good at Amgen. I was really happy. And then I was a shareholder of Mankind back in 14 when Afreza got approved. And when they sold the rights, I honestly didn't see much else in the pipeline. So I sold my stock and didn't pay anything to it. And then one day in 2016, I see Afreza comes back to Mankind in Valencia, California. And I'm like, Where, where's Valencia? And I'm just sure me well, but, but if I could do another turnaround in our backyard, that would be exciting. So I Googled Valencia. It's an hour away. I said, I can commute there. So I emailed the CEO and said, you need a guy who does turnarounds, you know, between Pfizer failing Exubra and Sanofi failing Freza that, that no one's going to license this product right away. You got to turn around yourself. And a week later, I had a job offer and was supposed to meet our man, but he wasn't um, doing that well. And I was hemming and hauling about coming because it was a huge risk at that time. The company wasn't in really good shape. And then our man passed away on my daughter's birthday. 
and I'm a little superstitious. And I said, that's the sign I'm waiting for. So I decided to go back to Amgen and say, pretty sure I'm going to take this risk. Tell me I'm crazy. And they were very supportive and, and it just worked out. The stars aligned. I signed on as the number two guy. I was chief commercial officer. And really from day one, we had to build an entire company, David, in 90 days. Sanofi walked away, the product's coming back. We had no supply of mankind branded product. And in 90 days, I had to get manufacturing up and going and, you know, with mankind brands, a sales force, a medical team, a pharmacovigilance, clinical trials. It was a mess. And so, you know, that was 2016 was just trying to get the company to survive. And then in 2017 kind of is when I became CEO and we kind of started turning around the journey since then. So you did, you never, you never sat down with uh, Al himself. Never had a chance to meet Al, unfortunately. Brilliant mind, one of the kindest people. I, I think everything I want to talk to people, just a very generous guy, right? And, and my belief when I came here was, you know, it took us $3 billion to get a Fresa to market in 20 years. And so when people talk about drug pricing or drug innovation, it took us $3 billion to take a 100-year-old product and make it inhaled. I mean, that that is unbelievable. 70 clinical trials, thousands of patients. And without Alman's generosity, right, we wouldn't be here today, nor would Fresa be on the market for patients. But, um, you know, he had such conviction around what he saw in insulin profiles and the insulin pump business that he'd sold to Medtronic as Minimed. You know, he saw that the biggest problem is the lag effect of insulin. And he was, he spent a billion dollars of his own money and he started 17 companies in his life. I mean, the guy was a genius. So and that leads us into the pipeline discussion in United Therapeutics, which I'll talk about somewhere in the podcast, I'm sure. But, but we you know for a lot of people who like look at you now, you know, your the company's on, you know, you're solid financially and Fresha is, you know, doing all right. Give them a glimpse of how touch and go was it? I mean, were there days you figured, you know, this is a really good thing, but it ain't going to go. I mean, I came here because of a present, right? So for me, from day one, I saw on Twitter and, and Facebook, all these beautiful CGM charts. And I remember talking to the patient saying, what did you do to get that result? Before I even took the job, I interviewed 20 patients and they described what they did. And then I looked at our clinical data and I said, wow, they just underdosed this drug. They didn't dose it right. So then I talked to 20 docs. I actually talked to like hundred docs. I did market research myself. And the docs said, oh, inhaled insulin's bad. It's not safe. All these excuses they gave. But then I would show them the CGMs and said, if you can get that result, would you like that result? And they said, that result is impossible for a type one. No type one can have sugar that tightly controlled. And so that's when I knew we had a home run winner. And my biggest surprise, David, was, was when I came to the company for a gentleman who put a billion dollars and he just passed away, I thought there'd be more financial support. And when I do turnarounds, you know, generally big companies do some things right, some things wrong. Here at Mankind, there's a lot of things we didn't get right. We didn't publish the efficacy and safety data across all the trials. We didn't figure out the pharmacological dosing of the product and, and what was in the label was off. We didn't have the right package selection. We didn't have the right samples that Sanofi gave away. They gave away four units instead of eights and twelves. There were so many mistakes made along the journey that that's why the launch struggled. It's why the post-launch struggled. And it's why we had to redo some studies. But then I didn't have any money to redo the studies. So kind of would, you know, we were stuck in this catch-22, which is how do you hire people with no money? And, you know, for me, I invested my own money. I put hundreds of thousands of dollars in our stock. I feel very good about our future. And that's my own money. This isn't stock I get because I work here. It's, it's I believe in our future and I'm betting where my mouth is. And, and so I never lost conviction about a Frezza. I think there were some dark days with the company where we only had one quarter of cash left. And, and one time we had less than a month of cash. And, you know, being able to tell your employees, don't quit, hang in there, or you're recruiting people from Novo or Lilly. And they're like, well, I'm not, you know, I've been in Novo 10 years. I'm worried about the the, you know, the risk. And I'm like, guys, there's always money. It's just how painful do you want to raise the money? And so I think there were dark days and there was a time when our stock was at 70 cents a share. And that was in 2017. And I remember like, we got to find a billionaire to take the company private and, you know, bring it back out and get rid of all the shorts and get rid of the debt. And, you know, that then all of a sudden the stock started moving. And honestly, it was kind of 
serendipitous. You know, right when I became CEO, the man, the man trustees, they gave us thirty million dollars, and that bought me a quarter. And then I settled with Sanofi, that bought me some time. And then I raised sixty million dollars. So it was like day by day, quarter by quarter, we started getting this ball rolling. And then we got the pipeline moving. And then a Fresa study is right out very positive. And so things just started all clicking. It took longer than I liked, but 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 I think when you look back on the journey, it's amazing we're here today. It's amazing what we got through. And then COVID hit last year, right? And that could have just destroyed everything. So, so we were on the right track last year. We felt really good. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, shit, what do you do? So we took pay cuts. We reduced 401k matches. We did everything we could to make sure the mankind survived last year. And I just want to give our employees listening, like, they were the heart and soul of the company. They went above and beyond. Nobody left us despite taking 20% pay cuts. And, and we made it through. And, and now we're here. You know, stocks going up a lot in the last year. Uh, Fresno has been growing again. And um, we made, made a lot of changes under COVID. Uh, to kind of- Could you explain to people, okay, everybody knows it's inhaled. I don't think most people understand how rapid acting it is. And also explain kind of like some of the structural hurdles you've had because you're kind of going against an established paradigm. So explain a little bit about, okay, and, and do it in layman's terms, you know, you know, not everybody is a pharmacologist and, you know, explain kind of how it works. And the kind of the issue you've had getting it into this, hey, how do we get, you know, either add it to, you know, because that's really what it's, it's, it's used as an add-on therapy pretty much. So, you know, explain how that will all work. Yeah. So first thing I'll say, David, is if I ask, probably I've done this one every time I go out and meet customers, from the time I bolus my insulin to the time I'm going to see a decline on my CGM, how long is that? And I get everything from immediate, five minutes, 20 minutes. You know, but these are endocrinologists. Their only job is to understand pharmacology of insulin, right? I mean, the, the treat these patients, understand the food meal interactions. And the reality is we fail to educate our diabetes educators and our physicians on PKPD of insulin. They do not understand. It takes two hours, an hour and a half to two hours from the time I bolus to the time my, well, my CGM is going to start dropping. And that's just because insulin is a hexamer, injectable insulin. It takes about 45 minutes to break down, and then it finally gets to the liver, and then it's another 45 minutes before it starts bringing down your sugar. You can't do anything. That's just the nature of trying to make injectable insulin stable. And, and so there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how we've been able to treat this disease. In the case of a Fresa, we make it monomeric. So we freeze dry it in our technology, and it's human insulin and water. So when I ask you, what are you afraid of? Is it the human insulin or the water? Because those are the only two ingredients. And we know the water is pretty good. So I think the body likes human insulin. And so we've made this overly complex, to be honest with you, in the diabetes community about safety and efficacy and all these things. It's human insulin, guys. And so we make that in a monomeric form, which means just like when you breathe in oxygen, your insulin is getting across your lungs. It's getting directly into the blood. It's getting directly into the portal system. You're seeing in about 15 minutes, it's shutting down your endogenous glucose production. And for people who don't know what that means, that means your liver is signaling to the body to release sugar. We get there almost an hour before injectable insulin. So if you can stop that signaling pathway, you can reduce the glucose burden in the body and start, you, you, every time you look at our data, David, you will see the highs just get obliterated with the Fresa. They come down right away. Now, underdose the Fresa, which is the problem we had in our trials, not so, right? You would see people escape. But when you look at some of our new data we generated, giving proper dose of a Fresa really makes a huge difference in that, that shutting off of that endogenous glucose production and removing that, that burden in the body. And that's been like the biggest thing about the speed is it works fast. It works completely differently in injectable insulin. So you can't compare an insulin unit to injectable to an insulin unit of inhaled. They're very different. We've done all the retrospective data. It's about a one and a half, two to one ratio, right? So if you're on four units of injectable, you're probably going to need eight units of a Fresa. And so that's the speed. So it's also out of the body. So when you eat, your food pretty much peaks in about an hour, hour and a half. 
and then it's out of the body. So when you go latent hypoglycemia or rage bolusing, as I hear Dr. Edelman talk about, it's really the latent effect of insulin finally kicking in, but yet your food's cleared. So you got no food to catch your insulin. And that's why you have so much hypoglycemia. And then you're eating your way out of hypo and then you're going high again and you become a yo-yo effect, right? And it's really annoying. And, and so that's the speed, right? It's in and out of the body quick. We, we get, we, we address, we peak when your food peaks, we're out of the body when the food's out, you see less hypoglycemia and you're seeing good time and range. Cause you know, even at one hour, you can dose a Frezza. I remember debating with some of the world's thought leaders that you could dose a Frezza one hour and everyone said, no, you're going to get rage bolusing. You're going to call stacking. And I had to run a study just to prove to the world's experts that you can dose a Frezza as soon as one hour. The risk is minimal. And we won. We, we crushed time and range. We had less hypo. So I think all the data is held up. And, and that's what people have to understand. It's completely different than anything else you've ever experienced on the speed side of it. And so it's in and out of the body. I think all that's there. And then you get into the device, right? So the devices get you, you get really good absorption. You get very consistent absorption. Uh, some of the questions I get is, Mike, I don't feel anything. I don't taste anything. 97% of people don't get, don't, don't have a coffee after 30 days. So some people may get a cough in the first month. That's fine. It pretty much goes away, you know, 97% of the time, but it's a, that's what the cough feels like. It's not a chronic cough that you cough in two hours later. Cause I got a lot of questions during COVID like, well, I don't want to take it. I'm going to be coughing all the time. Like you're going to cough as soon as you take your dose, sit in the bathroom for 30 seconds. I don't know what to say, but so I think that's a lot of it. And now we're going into pediatrics. So that's some of the questions I get is why didn't we file in Europe and some of the other markets? We had to finish the part one of the PED study here in the U.S., and uh, we just finished that up. The FDA just gave us the green light to go to phase three. So that's kicking off here next quarter. And uh, we're working with the Jabe Center, who I know you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. So they're leading the trial for us. And uh, so we're super excited about, about that speed of a Frezza and kind of where we're going from the new indications. Do you think part of the, what I'll call a disconnect, is everybody became so fascinated that it wasn't injected that they almost like said, oh my God, this is, you know, it really isn't what they thought it was, you know, because everybody, we obviously had the terrible failure of Redubra, which obviously didn't help you any. But then, you know, lost in this translation, because most of the, what I would call noted diabetologists, the ones who actually see patients and the ones who themselves have diabetes, you know, what you hear from them is, you know, I could care whether, I could care less whether it's ejected or inhaled, it works fast. Yeah. And so do you, but do you, are you kind of in a way re-educating everybody? Is that, it's like you're almost reinventing the wheel? Remember, like we, we target 7,000, 8,000 doctors, 3,000 of them write a Frezza. So our docs who write a Frezza and those who write it more than by patients, they understand how to do the lung function test. They understand the clinical benefits of the drug. But for the large majority of docs who've not written zero or one or two patients, they don't understand the product still, right? And that's our chance to re-educate them. And that's some of what we're just now doing is, is how do we demonstrate that the education around the, the monomeric form of insulin, right? The dosing of the product, the hypoglycemia, the, the weight change, you know, we don't see as much weight gain generally when you're starting a Frezza than you do injectable insulin. So all those things is a chance to re-educate the market, right? And I think that's, you're, you're right. I mean, I always tell people, there's no way I would have ever taken this job if the only reason for a Frezza was needle-free. I've had needle-free injectable devices and, and injectables, and three to 5% of people are truly needle-phobic. That's not a sustainable business for mankind or any company. And, and it's not the reason to use a Frezza. The reason to use it is you want good control. We know 20% of people on injectable insulin miss their lunchtime, miss their one of their doses a day. And if you're missing your, and it's predominantly your lunchtime dose because they're out socially and they don't want to inject. And so if you're missing 20% of your doses, you're never going to get in control, right? And, and David, you, you've known this a long time. I mean, we, we see today after 10 years, 
maybe 20 years ago back, probably 80% of the people on injectable insulin are not a goal, less than seven, right? And so now we can argue some people, maybe that's not their goal, but the reality is we know damage is happening above seven. We know it's a lot less, less than seven, but for eight out of 10 people, despite all the CGM, all the insulin pumps, all the extra stuff we put on the patients in the last 20 years, we haven't really moved the needle much in outcomes. And that, that's a big cost to society. Uh, I just listened to another podcast. 1% of all taxpayer dollars goes to dialysis, <laughs> right? 1%. That's huge. Yeah. So we got to do something better across society, not just mankind. Now, you've also had some pretty good success at transitioning mankind from quote unquote being a diabetes company to being a drug delivery company. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. No, I think that's the, the biggest, you know, people always yell at me for how fast a Fres has grown. And the reality, David, is, as you know, diabetes, endocrinologists, this is a 40, 50-year disease. They're not in a rush to change overnight. This is about experience and confidence. And so I could have spent an extra $100 million to drive faster a Freza, but I probably would have lost $95 million, right? It just wasn't worth the extra money because it just takes time that this drug had to be on the market, that doctors would have to see our efficacy and safety data. And as that happens, then I think they'll get more and more comfortable. We're hearing a lot more positive chatter these days. Uh, so in the meantime, you know, we diverted some of our investments away from Afreza into the pipeline. And uh, one of the bets that we took was Trapostanol. So back when I became CEO in 2017, we made two strategic decisions. We funded a, a type one study called the STAT trial, and we funded Trapostanol. And we said, let's see if our technology is so good, we should see a better result on the, on the, on the Trapostanol study. And if Afreza is so great, we should see a good result on the STAT trial. My belief was we underdosed the patients. Let's run a small study, get the data in four weeks. We remember running on fumes back then. And so we got to get data quickly to show whether this drug works or not so we know what to do. And it turns out we had two home runs. The STAT study showed better postprandial control than sub-Q insulin. And the tropocinal drug dosed three times higher than the market leader. So in, in that particular market, it's uh, pulmonary hypertension. And these patients literally, uh, they have hypertension in their lungs. They can't breathe. And you get tropocinal and it dilates the lungs and... One of the problems is these patients are on a nebulizer and they can't get out of their house, right? They got to set up this machine. You need sterile water, you need electricity to backup pump. You can't leave. So you're kind of chained to your house. And, and so we thought, number one, they could dose higher with our technology because we need to deliver more drug to the lung than they could. And we might get better outcomes if you got better consistency across the lungs. And that's what we saw. We saw really nice dispersion here in, in, this, in this product. And um, we dosed three times higher. So that turned into a business development deal with United Therapeutics. And that drug just got filed by the FDA to, to the FDA. And, and we expect approval by the end of this year. And we'll be launching this uh, end of this year, early next year. And so that's really important because that revenue will continue to fund innovation across our company, right? And whether that innovation becomes more clinical trials in Afreza or it becomes more pipeline assets, you know, we'll continue to allocate capital as we see opportunities. But, but Trapostanol is going to be a huge opportunity for mankind our shareholders, and ultimately our patients, because that allows us to have the money to reinvest to help other patients. And so United will be launching that. And then we, and now since then, David, we've built, we just bought a company in December for another orphan disease called non-tuberculum mycobacterium. Uh, so that's moving full speed ahead. And then we have three other assets in the pipeline, all for orphan lungs. So when you think about mankind today, you got Afreza and you got Afreza growth in multiple ways, international expansion, indications, continued growth in the US. You got Trapostanol, where we'll make money on manufacturing and royalties. And then you got our pipeline. And then the, the last avenue is going to be our technology. So we are licensing our platform to partners, putting their molecules on it, not in orphan lungs. So we're not going to create necessarily our own competitors, but we'll, we'll use it for things like migraine or epinephrine or something else, right? So things that aren't going to be in orphan lung space, we're happy to use our technology to other partners, and then we'll make manufacturing revenue and royalties off that. So we've got several deals where we've, we're doing the formulation work first, and then that'll turn into a development deal if all goes well. 
So it kind of becomes a platform company, a drug and drug company, and an endocrinology company. So we're now pretty well diversified and we're sitting on $230 million in cash. So talk about a company near bankruptcy to having a pipeline and $230 million, we're in a good spot. If you look out five years, I mean, and let's let's take a big picture view. You know, first question would be, if you look out five years, do you think you'll still be an independent company? Second question would be, if you are an independent company, what do you think will be, where do you think a fresher will be by then? And what do you think people will fully understand that, hey, we're not just a fresher, but we are other drugs as well? Yeah. You know, I can never speculate on acquisitions. I'm a young CEO. I, I'm not looking to retire. So I have no desire to not be here. They could fire me, I guess, but I'm not retiring. So, you know, someone that's up to the board to make those decisions on acquisitions. I, you know, I, I you know, we, we may look to buy things. That's a whole different set of kettlefish, but we're not, you know, we have enough to do right now that we're not actively looking at M&A. We, we think we can grow a lot organically. And that's our main focus is to drive as much shareholder value as we can. So I hope we're an independent company, but but that's not my decision. I'll, I'll support whatever decisions the board makes if that happens. Where will Fresa be? I think when you roll out five years from today, we'll probably be a global product. So it'll be in Europe, Australia, Brazil, India, Canada. So all those markets are working on filings as we speak. Hopefully by then we're doing a study in Japan and China to help those patients as well. So I think that's one of the things our man would love to see as a global there's 500 million people with diabetes, so can we help those around the world? Uh, now, we may launch many of those markets through partners, right? We're not going to go build infrastructure around the world unless it makes strategic sense, then we'll think about it. But as of now, that's not our first plan. Then I ho- hope you see additional indications. So we're looking at um, pediatric, obviously, as an expansion. And then we're looking at gestational diabetes as well. So those are two areas. And then special populations. Can we look at cystic fibrosis and diabetes and things like that? Elderly population is another one. So we, we think there's that. And then there's prediabetes. So... I think there's a lot more that if you, you know, the very first thing that goes in type 2 diabetes is your mealtime defect, your, your prandial. The very last thing we give you is mealtime insulin, right? So I always struggle in type 2 to say every other hormonal disease, we usually replace the deficient hormone, with the exception of diabetes, right? We give you basal, and that's not, not the first thing that goes. It's your prandial effect. And we forget about that study from 20 years ago or 45, 44 years ago when the data first came out. I remember it was 1976. So that's that's when I was in a little embryo. So I, I think that's number one. Number two, our pipeline will be full speed ahead. So by five years from today, we'll be launching our next drug outside of Tybeso. Hopefully clopazamine will be launched by around then. And then our next drug is right behind that one. So all of a sudden our pipeline will be hitting in 2025, 2026. So you'll hear us say, you know, almost one drug a year launching in the orphan lung space. And so that that's kind of one of our goals is through BD, uh, continue to find additional opportunities to hit one drug a year starting in 2025. So yeah, do you ever envision a day that you would say, you know, hey, we're 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 really good at drug delivery. We're gonna un, we're gonna offload a fresher and concentrate, you know, because you'll develop the market, you know, is, is that a possibility? Look, anything's possible. I mean, you can make the argument you could have a, a lung function, you know, a lung company and an endocrinology company, and you split them off and a phrase is a manufacturing. I, I think that it's always about shareholder value, David, right? If there's a reason to split them apart, then you do that. If there's a reason to keep them together and their synergies, you do that. I mean, today it'd be very hard from where we are to start to split the company because the manufacturing is so critical to Fresa, it's so critical to Tyveso that you need the expertise of the people. It's four or five years to build a new factory from scratch. And it's very expensive, a couple hundred million dollars. So, you know, we're not going to put that kind of capital back in to kind of, then you got to debate how the factory's running. And, you know, no one wants to risk, you know, we, we want to make sure we're a good partner to United, but there's nothing more critical than the supply chain for a Fresa or a Tyveso. And so it's hard to really see a split from that perspective when you start to get into cogs and the efficiencies there. Anything's possible in the world, but but I think 
you know, United will be a big partner. We'll probably have another product with them hopefully one day. And uh, you'll continue to see them be a strategic partner. But, but you know, and then the question I always get is, hey, would you partner with a big pharma? And and that answer is TBD, right? I mean, would I, would I partner with a large pharma outside the U.S. who has a lot of the infrastructure? Yeah, I think for the right deal terms, we would, we would look at that. I think within the U.S., I mean, no offense, if Pfizer and Sanofi were not successful and inhaled insulin, a little old mankind who practically couldn't survive sold more than they did. Last year, we sold more than they both did combined ever in their history. So we, we passed our $100 million mark here in Q1 of cumulative of Fresno sales. You know, it took us 18 quarters to get the first $50 million. It took us six quarters for the next 50. We're kind of well on our way now, David. So I, I think, as you probably know, the economics of insulin, one of the things we didn't talk about was the structural issues of insulin pricing. The competition has commoditized themselves, right? They had a race to the bottom on rebates to block market share, to block competition. And now insulin is 60, 70% off at payers. Patients are paying out the wazoo. Employers are paying out the wazoo. And PBMs are just milking money. Insulin is the third and fourth highest rebated category for a PBM. So who's making money on insulin? The wholesalers, the PBM. And they literally get 60, 70 cents off on a dollar from Lily and Novo to block a Fresa. To block each other, not just me, they block each other. So, and the payer in response gives you 95% market share for your particular insulin. So you have to do absolutely nothing. You don't have to have a sales rep, a medical person, do a clinical trial. They force a doctor to write half the time Lily and half the time Novo. And Sanofi's basically kind of given up a little bit outside of their biosimilars, right? In terms of that. Well, you know, but you know, it's an interesting point you make. I think, you know, the average. You know, those of us who are in the industry and we follow the industry and we pay attention to such things, you know, you see these posts on Twitter or Facebook about, you know, the the very high cost, you know, of insulin. And and really the average patient has no clue that it has nothing to do really with the product itself, but how the product is sold. And, you know, you are 100% correct there that it is, you know, this, you know, here we are. I mean, I don't... Uh, I don't remember when insulin analogs came along, but twenty years ago, nineteen ninety-eight or ninety-nine. Yeah, it's got yeah. So and we haven't really seen much innovation since. But I also remind people, right? You took Humalog, they were prior off, they were fighting to get Humalog back then. And then Novo launched, and Novo brought out the pen. And then it took like seven years, if I recall, three to seven years for the for the go from a vial to a pen, right? Yeah. You think about yeah. how hard it is to change endocrinology and behaviors and experience. You know, it took our man 20 years with the mini med insulin pump to get pediatrics penetrated so that that swings into adults with Medtronic today. But that didn't happen overnight. And, you know, even yeah. the pump market's just being innovated 20 years later. But so I think that's when you asked me about inhaled insulin, will we ever give up or how do we feel? It's like, this is a long-term play, not a short-term play. You got to have the stamina to stick with it when everyone's against you. And, you know, and that's what, look, our investors are stuck by us, bought stock at a dollar and now it's $4. So, you know, we, we, we have a good feel for where we're going and what we're going to do, how we're going to get there. And, and I think Afreza still has the best days in front of it. I, I know it didn't launch well like everybody expected, but but the data is solid. The unmet need is solid. You know, you know everyone lives with this disease. I mean, hypoglycemia is still a huge challenge. We now we got three new gly- hypoglycemic formulations in the last year after 20-some years. We got a biosimilar insulin. We got all this stuff, but it's really dealing with, high, you know, Fiosp and Lumgev, you know, that's great. But look at the data. Have they fundamentally changed the outcomes of those patients? And I think you'd be hard-pressed to really see, is there a difference in A1C, weight gain, and time and range. And, and so, you know, the innovation is still still not where we need it to be across this disease. You know, and it, final kind of a wrap for you is that, you know, if you had a message you wanted to deliver, because, you know, we get, not only do we have a lot of business people who listen, we have a lot of, obviously, endocrinologists, primary care physicians, CDEs. What kind of message would you send to them about why they should give a fresh a try? 
I'd say you got nothing to lose. Your patients have been doing the same thing for 20 years, whether you put in an Omnipod, a pump, a, a pen, it doesn't really matter. Insulin is insulin when you inject it. The profiles don't change dramatically between an injectable pen, the different formulations out there. But we're doing the same thing. We're just playing with the tools in a different order. And my view is why not try a whole new tool, right? Get to know it. We're going to be here. I could see doctors for the last three, four years. Is mankind going to be here? Don't want to waste my time. We're going to be here for the next 20 years. Your patients want to try this. Give them a chance to do something different to gain control of their disease. What do you have to lose? You can always go back to your pump. You can always go back to your injectable insulin. And in many cases, David, people are just adding it on top. Now, we're not indicated for integrated with pump use. We're looking at those things. But we do see, you know, some people use injectable insulin for their dinner and they tap off with a Fresa. Like it's a universal tool for glycemic control where we look to bring sugars down. That's what a Fresa can help you with. And uh, my view is, you know, try to learn how to use it, learn how to prescribe it, learn how to dose it. It's not one-to-one. Our number one complaint is it did not work because people underdosed it. And so you got nothing to lose. Try to help your patients. Try something completely different than you're comfortable with. We all went from a flip phone to a BlackBerry to an iPhone. We will change, David. Eventually, we'll all be driving a electric car someday. Not me, but somebody else will. Well, well, that's a good way to leave it because we like real change in this business. Michael, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you.